Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Bim. Uh, excuse me. Uh, this is Joe <laughs> McCorb Bim. Excuse me. My name is Joe McCormick, and I am so excited to Bim. I mean, I am so excited to talk about today's movie. Yeah, I mean, the Bimness is strong. The Bim is strong in this picture because in today's episode, we are going to be talking about 1980s The Apple. Uh, this is uh, this is a film that has been requested before by listeners. This is a film that uh, I, I was previously familiar with from uh, from it being featured on Rift Tracks many years ago. But yeah, this one is a tremendously weird and wonderful and flawed rock and roll disco musical that is also dystopian. Uh, it's biblical. It's it's everything and more. It's like a Willy Wonka candy. This is one of the weirdest movies we have ever covered on the show. It is it's up there with like Super Mario Brothers and the <laughs> other ones that are just kind of impossible to describe the feeling of. You just have to see it. And this is another one that I uh I can't believe I made it this far in my life without ever having seen before. It's like right up my alley. This is the kind of movie I should have seen when I was 20 years old and watched 15 times since then. But this actually was my first viewing. So I'm very, very grateful uh, to you for choosing it this week, Rob. Uh, And it's going to be it's a new classic. It's going to be a favorite in our house. I know. I watched it, uh, rewatched it uh, on a on a flight uh, a few weeks back, and after we selected it here, I watched it two more times. So it's it's rare that I watch a, a film twice uh, in preparation for an episode of Weird House, and I don't think I've ever watched a film three times in preparation for a Weird House. But but this one's irresistible. But yes, now now what did you say to describe its rough genre alignment? It's like a biblical, allegorical, dystopian science fiction musical? 
Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, because it's very much like 1984. There's this Orwellian uh, kind of vibe going on, you know. And then at the same time, it is biblical in nature. This is a movie that will take you to the hell. Uh, in, in the same way that the Coffin Joe movie that we, we watched <laughs> takes you to the hell. The, yeah. the, I think they, those two visions of hell line up rather rather well alongside each other. But yeah, on the other hand, it's a Perils of Fame movie. Uh, again, it's very disco. It's also very glam rock. Uh, it dabbles in some other musical genres as well. Um, but it is, uh, yeah, it's tremendous. It's, uh, I should also mention it again, it is a musical. So this would be, I believe only the third musical that we've covered on weird house cinema. The others being 1960s, the ship of monsters mm. and 1985's Billy, the kid and the green Bay's vampire. Uh, for me personally too, very strong highlights from our back catalog. I loved both of those movies, especially ship of monsters. I just think of fondly so often. This is a film that apparently did not do well upon release. It was not received <laughs> well uh, by the general movie-going public. Um, I think it was, it's a situation where it was both a little past its time and before its time. Because certainly, it's been well-received in more recent years. I mean, it has a cult following. People love it. People There have been uh, showings of it. Sometimes they've even brought in some of the filmmakers and the cast, and you have people showing up with the little BIM stickers on their forehead, mm -hmm. uh, which all sounds like a great deal of fun. But at the time, uh, people booed it. People walked out, allegedly, during uh, some of the musical numbers. And I think part of that is that this, again, is a film that it's not all disco, but it has very strong disco elements and it comes out in 1980. That's uh, just like in the year following the whole disco demolition night thing. This, this, this sort of like sort of mainstream backlash against disco where some people, I, I don't think they were really in a, in a position to make this claim, decided, you know what? Disco's dead. Disco's lame. Uh, we're not doing disco anymore. Um, kind of a backlash, I guess, against Saturday Night Fever and all of its uh, success. But uh, but also, you know, I think also a backlash that was very much based in um, homophobia and, uh, and racism. And, uh, you know, you don't have to like disco, but disco's dead. Come on, that's ridiculous. And disco didn't die. Disco lived on. And certainly it, it continued to survive outside of this uh, sort of mainstream backlash in North America. Anyway, it's a bit of a tangent, but Basically, I'm saying this is a film that has sort of mid-70s energy, and it was unfortunate enough to come out in 1980. All right. Well, Rob, maybe you can set me uh, straight on, on this if I'm wrong. But the way I understand the, the sort of market positioning of the Apple is it was a movie that came out uh, a couple of years after, like, Grease. And so Grease was a big hit. It was a big, you know, rock musical movie hit. While... Exactly what makes it appealing to me is how off the wall and it just absolutely bananas it is. I think that probably did not appeal to a lot of the crowd that went and saw Greece and loved it. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Greece, though, because I think you can certainly look at this picture and you can identify the successful buckets of content, musical uh, content that it's drawing from. You know, it's like, let's get a little Grease in there. Let's get a little bit of Rocky Horror in there. Let's get a little bit of Godspell in there. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, these elements are, are very clear. You can, it, it wears these uh, influences on its sleeve. 
In fact, there are even moments in this movie that very strongly reminded me of Greece, despite the dystopian sci-fi setting and all of the like vampires and devils and everything. Uh, there's like one song in it that basically sounds like a copy of the song Sandy from Greece, except it's uh, talking about Alfie. Okay. <laughs> I know the song you're talking about, but I, I have, I've never actually seen Greece, so I can't, I, oh, okay. I can't compare it as well. And so that, that comparison didn't jump out at me when I was watching it. But I, I, of course, I love Rocky Horror and I love Godspell. I love, I love a number of these, uh, these big musicals from that time period. You know, there is another weird uh, rock musical movie that has, I would say, significant overlap with The Apple, but I think is widely considered a much better film, and that's Phantom of the Paradise. But that came out way back in 74. Oh, yeah. That one's also on our list to cover at some point, I believe. Yeah. I should also throw in that The Apple is a production of Canon Films. Oh, <laughs> so, how could we leave uh, that out? Yeah, we'll get into some of the details beyond, behind that. But that's kind of like the seal of excellence uh, that, <laughs> that kind of uh, prepares you for your experience with the Apple. Uh, you know that this is a canon film, and if you're familiar with other canon productions, you know what that might imply. Well, yes and no. So on one hand, it does have some very uh, campy canon qualities. Canon films are widely known uh not to be unkind, but they're widely known for being hack, sort of like mm -hmm. poster first movie making. It's like here we have a poster of uh, Chuck Norris holding a machine gun. There's some, like jungle leaves around him. We can write a script around that, have the movie out. You know, it, it's it's that kind of uh, marketing first movie making, which is funny because th that exact approach to music is lampooned within the Apple. Yes. But I would say <laughs> the Apple is by far of all the canon films I can think of that I've seen, it feels the most like a movie that was made with genuine passion behind it. Like, it may not be executed with the sharpest ear for tone, uh, but this does feel in some ways like a passion project. And there are other elements of it that do have some of that, that canon hackiness, but it feels like some people working on this movie thought they were making something meaningful that, that like, had emotional resonance and mattered. It feels that way to me. Yeah, yeah. I think this was a, a passion project in, in many ways. And not to say it was completely a passion project, but th th there's, there's some real authentic energy that went into creating it here. So we're going to have a lot to we have more to say about all of this, but I would say my elevator pitch is basically Adam, Eve, God, the devil, disco, drugs, and rock and roll, the musical. I was going to say American Idol meets the running man. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Let's go ahead and hear that fantastic trailer audio in which you'll get to hear some of the music that uh, makes this film so special. In 1994, the world is controlled by one power. The apple is success. There ain't no pride. There ain't no shame. There ain't no sympathy. The Apple brings you everything. What about happiness? I wanted to release Phoebe from a contract. Cheers. 
Where is she? The apple is the temptation. The apple is the experience. Take the apple! Whoa! Praise the apple! The apple is the forbidden fruit. The apple takes your soul. Special experience in movie-going entertainment, The Apple. All right. Well, if you if you're convinced, you've you've got to see The Apple as well before you hear us talk about it. Uh, you can find it uh, in a number of formats. There are multiple streaming options. I think there's some like sort of free streaming options as well. Uh, there's also a physical Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. So, uh, yeah, get your physical media if you would if you would like to own <laughs> uh, the Apple uh, forever. Because, like I say, once you get into it, uh, you're going to want to watch it multiple times. All right. Uh, let's talk about the uh, individuals who made this film. Let's start at the top with Menahem Golan. Uh, he was the director, the writer, and, of course, uh, one of the producers. He lived 1929 through 2014. Menahem Golan is the Golan in Golan Globus, which is another, the Golan Globus were the, the heads of Canon Films in the 80s. Yeah, the, the, with Globus being Yoram Globus, uh, his yeah. cousin, yeah. But Golan here, uh, Israeli film producer, screenwriter, director, and yeah, a co-owner of the Canon Group from 79 through 85, um, which, you know, again, gave us a whole, bu- a whole bunch of stupendous canon films. They occasionally busted out some critically praised movies as well, like 1985's uh, Runaway Train. Um, but other stuff, it was like Chuck Norris's The Delta Force from 86 <laughs> or 1981's Enter the Ninja starring Franco Nero <laughs> as a ninja. Both of those were also directed by Golan. Uh, uh, I was trying to think, what canon films have we actually done on the podcast? I think Treasure of the Four Crowns was a canon film, was it not? I think you're right. You know, I was struggling er- I, earlier. I was like, have we talked about, I know we haven't talked about a Golan film, but have we talked about a canon film? And I think you're right. If th- that one either is a canon film or it's so canony that it, it it's it's an understandable mistake. Uh-huh. Uh, we haven't done it on the show yet, and I wouldn't have known this off the top of my head, but I just saw on a list that Life Force is indeed also a canon uh, film. Oh, man, we've come close to covering Life Force. It's very much on the list. 
Anyway, as, as for Golan here, he produced over 200 films during his lifetime. He directed 44 of them. Uh, his first directorial credit was a 1963 Western called El Dorado that uh, starred Topol. And um, when it comes to musicals, he produced a good dozen of these, including 1985's Rappin', exclamation point, and 1984's Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo. Mm. Um, but this was the first musical he directed, uh, but not his last, because he also directed 1989's Mac the Knife, which I haven't seen, uh, and I understand not everyone loves, but <laughs> it features a cast that includes Raul Julia in the lead, Richard Harris, Roger Daltrey, and Bill Nye. Um, I mean, wow. how can you go wrong with that cast, especially with Raul Julia in the, in the lead? It's funny that nine years after he made The Apple, he made a movie starring Roger Daltrey because there is a guy in this movie who I am positive he wanted Roger Daltrey, <laughs> couldn't get him. So he's like, get me the guy you can find who looks closest to Roger Daltrey. And that's how we end up with the wonderful Alan Love in the, the role of Dandy. Yeah, they're like, give me the guy from Merlin. Um, <laughs> we'll talk, talk about that in a second. All right, so this is, uh, so again, when Golan was the director. He was also the writer, but we also have story credits as well as um, composition and lyric credits to a pair of individuals, the main one being Kobe Recht and, uh, and, I, this, and this other individual. I'm not sure if this is Kobe's wife or what the relationship is, but same last name, Iris Recht. And uh, Kobe Recht was an Israeli rock producer who acted in a handful of pictures, but his only other credited film composition is 1989's The Mask of the Red Death, starring Frank Stallone and Herbert Lohm. What? Um, it that sounds great on paper. Well, they thought they could one-up the one with Vincent Price. <laughs> I think I briefly looked into this one. Uh, I, I think Lohm was a, filling in for someone else that they tried to get. Not not Vincent Price, but someone of that caliber. But of course, Lohm, I think he was in some Hammer Horror films as well. So, you know, solid pedigree there. And then Iris, uh, this is her only credit, but she also plays the character Dominique, who I think is the presenter at the Eurosong type event that we're going to talk about here in a minute. Oh, okay, yeah. She comes out and introduces uh, 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 Alfie and BB. Yeah. So these two individuals seem to be the main creative forces behind the music, and we'll have a lot to say about the music <laughs> as we get into the plot. All right, now the cast proper. We are really our main character. Well, we have a, a pair of characters, two, two lovers um, that uh, enter into this world of fame and sin as innocents, very much our Adam and Eve character. These are the characters Bibi and Alfie. Bibi is played by Catherine Mary Stewart, born 1959, Canadian actor who is not born in Moose Jaw, uh, but this was her big break. So it's kind of like, you know, reality mirroring fiction here. Um, in 1984, she went on to appear in both The Last Starfighter, so we did previously talk about her in our episode on The Last Starfighter, as well as Night of the Comet. Ah. Yeah. And in 1987, she was in the wonderfully nutty adaptation of George R.R. R. Martin's Night Flyers. That one is also on the list for Weird House Cinema because it's ridiculous. Uh, she did 150 episodes of Days of Our Lives from 82 through 83. She did two different episodes of the 1990s Outer Limits series, and she's still very active. Uh, she appeared on a Law & Order episode in 2023. In general, I think Catherine Mary Stewart is great. I don't... I would say her performance in this movie is a kind of inconsistent. On one hand, 
what the story requires of her is to be kind of like the the innocent, yeah, the 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 sinless character who is introduced into an evil world and corrupted by it. Uh, but there are parts where she does seem just kind of like dazed, like she's just like yeah. wandering through the movie as things are happening. But then there are other scenes, like especially some of her musical numbers, where she's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the dazed parts, it, this is a film where, where that works. Like if you look a little yeah. dazed and you're a little out of it, I mean, that's kind of her character for a large portion of the film. So it doesn't, doesn't uh, you know, knock her performance any. But, uh, but yeah, she, she's, she's a, a, it's a great physical performance during the musical numbers. I'm to understand that her singing voice is actually provided by someone by the name of Mary Hyland, uh, which, you know, is understandable. Not everybody... Not everybody's a singer. And uh, this is, you know, standard operating procedure, certainly in, uh, like, say, Bollywood cinema, as we've discussed before. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's Bibi. And then there is her boyfriend. Also, this character is also supposed to be from uh, Moose Jaw, Canada. Um, This is Alfie, played by George Gilmore. I uh, couldn't find any dates on him uh, when he was born or, or so and so forth. I, I think he's still around. This is his only acting credit. He was allegedly a member of the Scottish band, the Bow Weevils, in the 1960s. But I couldn't find much about that on Discogs. So I'm not even entirely sure if that's correct or maybe I was looking at the, the wrong Bow Weevils. Uh, but <laughs> it's a it's a very earnest performance. It's, you know, a green performance. Uh, but he's at least very handsome. He is very handsome. I'm a little unsure why he has a British accent if he's supposed to be from Moose Jaw, Canada. Um, but I don't know. Maybe he's a British person who moved to Moose Jaw, Canada and then started performing alongside BB here. Um, he, Yeah, th- this character is a little stiff. I, I think our reaction to Alfie will make more sense when we talk about the, the plot in, in more detail. So those are our two, um, you know, babes in the woods. Uh, there are two innocents that are entering into this world of, of sin. And so let's talk about the people that are active in the industry here. Uh, first up, we have Pandy. Uh, Pandy is played by Grace Kennedy, born 1958, Jamaican-born actress who was a successful singer and BBC presenter. Uh, now she's apparently a luxury wedding and event designer. Uh, she had four albums out between 79 and 81. So uh, she's, you know, she's, uh, she's very much like the top female star in the, uh, in the music industry that's presented in the film, uh, looks fabulous throughout and of course has uh, just tremendous vocal ability. Yeah. Grace Kennedy is great. So she's part of this duo and, uh, uh, I was going to say, and it is Dandy and Pandy. And, uh, they, I think in contrast to our two main characters are really, uh, fun, devilish performances. And then Pandy has a late, uh, late narrative change of heart and redemption arc, uh, which works pretty well too. That's right. That's right. Uh, not so, not so much Dandy. No, Dandy's just a, he's just a cad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Dandy is our seductive Brit rocker. Um, the, this is the one that you said was clearly they wanted Roger Daltrey. They, they couldn't get him at the time. Um, he, he was out of their budget, I guess, for the time being. Uh, if only they'd made this film later, they could have definitely hired, like wooed him away from the Highlander, the series. But, <laughs> but they, they got they, they couldn't get him for this. Uh, but you know what? Alan Love is great. He uh, he he is just a bad rock and roll man. <laughs> 
Yeah, he has this wonderful, like seductive, kind of sleazy quality to him. Um, so the, Alan Love was born in 1946, uh, still still very much around, I'm to understand. Um, and he has the, the pedigree. Uh, he was the lead singer of the mid-70s glam rock band Merlin. Definitely look them up on Discog so you can see the awesome album cover for the, uh, their, uh, their, their self-titled release. Merlin seems like a band I would know, but somehow I don't. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to check him out after this. He uh, was also in the earlier British um, rock band. I've seen it described as, as kind of like psych rock. Uh, it was called Opal Butterfly. Uh, but he also put out a single, Can't Get Over Losing You, in 79, you know, right before this film. His acting credits are, are few, but he did one episode of Fox Mystery Theater in 84, and he acted and composed for 1984's Pop Pirates, which actually does feature Roger Daltrey, as well as uh, the actor John Finch, who was in uh, Hitchcock's Frenzy and also in that uh, excellent 1970s adaptation of Macbeth. Um, Love went on to open a restaurant that was featured on an episode of Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> I'm to understand that it has, has subsequently closed. Oh, is this the UK or the US Kitchen Nightmares? I assume UK. I think it's UK. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I look, looked into it. it was, I think it's like a, it was like a fish restaurant or something. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, well, it, by the way, if you get, uh, if you get a chance to look up Alan Love's album, uh, can't get over losing you. It is, uh, funny because he's doing the pose. He's doing like <laughs> the seventies album cover pose that you've probably seen on many albums. Uh, the one that came up when I was searching for this, cause I knew I'd seen it before is like the Teddy Pendergrass. It's time for love. Uh, but it's like where you lay back sort of, you prop up on one arm and then have one knee bent up in a triangle shape. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who decided this would be like the look for uh, for album covers at this time, but apparently people thought it, it was cool. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just a pose that invites lovemaking. You know, it's like the, the individual in the picture is like, hey, I was just thinking about birds, but <laughs> lovemaking, maybe. Um, so, yeah, it's tremendous. Take a look at it. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. 
No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, other members of the cast, uh, we have the great Joss Ackland in this, who has a dual role, sort of, kind of. He plays Mr. Tops, who does not feature into the plot at all until the very end. And then he also plays another late character uh, that is referred to as the hippie leader, but I don't think has a name other than that. He plays the two out-of-nowhere characters in the movie, and one, one of them is really out-of-nowhere. Yeah. Now, it's, it's often been pointed out on you know, the various film sites and write-ups about this that there was they filmed and there was supposed to be a big opening number set in heaven or in paradise or something that clearly establishes Mr. Tops, that establishes the presence of God Almighty in this picture. But for various reasons, it just didn't work, and so they cut it. Uh, so that's the reason uh, the the biblical um, ending of the film uh, really seems to come out of nowhere. But Auckland's uh, great. Like if, if for no other reason, he's 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 definitely a reason you want to stick around and watch the full film. Uh, his acting credits go back to the mid '40s for stage and the late '40s for TV and screen. His credits include the 1971 Amicus Horror Anthology, The House That Tripped Blood. 72's The Mind Snatchers with Christopher Walken and Ronnie Cox. He's the voice of the Black Rabbit in 1978's adaptation of Watership Down. He did two, two episodes of Tales of the Unexpected, Lethal Weapon 2 in 89, The Hunt for Red October in 1990, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey in 91. He did both The Mighty Ducks in 92 and D3 in 96. That's what the kids call it, the third Mighty Ducks movie. And, uh, <laughs> but not D2? <laughs> I don't think he was in D2. I think just D3, you know? His, his triumphant return in part three. Yeah. 
And then he's uh, he's really wonderful as the wizard Mustrum uh, Ridcully, uh, I forget how it's pronounced, in 2006's The Hogfather. So um, he often play, he's really good at playing like very serious characters, but uh, as is um, apparent in this uh, adaptation of The Hogfather, the Terry Pratchett novel, uh, he gets to play a very silly wizard and it's a lot of fun. So his appearance in the Apple is categorically ludicrous, yet he does a pretty good job of of bringing gravitas to it. Like he's he tries to like tamp it down and make it serious. Mm-hmm. I don't think there is any actor alive who could really sell it and make it not hilarious when he shows up. But Acklin does a pretty good job. He somehow classes up the joint just by walking onto the screen and really just just, you know, using just a few lines here and there. Like he doesn't ha- have a huge presence in the movie, but it's kind of like he shows up and you're like, OK, we have to take things seriously now. And it, it actually makes you forget how unearned any of it is. Yeah. All right. So if we have a we have a God figure in this picture. We also have to have a devil. And our devil is Mr. Bugalow, played by Vladek Shabal. So they've 1923 through 1992. Um, our chief villain, the satanic head of BIM, a tremendous Polish actor of stage, screen, and TV. His, uh, his biggest credits include 1963's From Russia with Love, 67's Casino Royale, and 1984's Red Dawn. I say tremendous. Uh, I don't remember his presence in these other films that I've seen. I just know he's tremendous in this movie. And anytime <laughs> Bugalow is on the screen, you're just captivated by what is he going to say next? What is he going to do? What's he going to do with his face? Is he going to look directly at us again? Uh, oh, he's he, great. He does love looking straight into the camera. It's it, Bugalow because when we were... Bugalow, yes. Uh, it, uh, Microsoft Word kept trying to autocorrect that to bungalow. Yeah, yeah same here. Um, but, uh, yeah, I remember this actor from definitely from, uh, from Russia with love. That's one of the Sean Connery, James Bond movies where I mm-hmm. think he plays a, some kind of, uh, villain who plays chess. I think his name is Kronstein. Yeah. Yeah. He has a very distinctive face. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he also did, uh, let's see, I was looking around. He did 1980. It, it was in the 1980 TV adaptation of Shogun. He was also a regular on that old British UFO series that sometimes pops up in our connections. But yeah, absolutely wonderful in this. Uh, uh, Boogaloo is just a wonderful villain. Oh, but we got some more wonderful villains to kind of fill out the throne room of wickedness. Yes, he has a, there's a number of lackeys and they're all great. Uh, the first one we'll cover is Shake. Shake is his right-hand man, right? Yeah. Uh, played by Ray Shell, born 1951. I, I, I love this character. It's essentially kind of like a yeah, right-hand man, but also kind of a snake man. Sometimes actually a snake. Yes. <laughs> Appearing in a snake costume with like a snake mouth around his head. Yep, yep. Um, one of several characters uh, that is sometimes, sometimes on screen only in some sort of like bejeweled... Um, thong type of uh, costume uh-huh. and and still totally works it. Shell's other film and TV roles include 1998's Velvet Goldmine, but he's mostly known for his stage work and musical theater credits on the UK stage. He apparently uh, originated uh, lead roles in the musical Starlight Express in 84 and Five Guys Named Mo in 1990. And he's worked in various big name productions. Uh, he also was apparently part of the British New Wave music scene and is an author of uh, several books as well. 
Uh, in a movie where some some actors might have felt compelled to phone it in, Rachel he brings his A game here. He he is mm-hmm. uh, he is giving his all to this role, and he does great. Yes, yeah, absolutely fabulous. Uh, th- there are various other uh, stooges and lackeys. Uh, I'm not going to mention them all here. We'll get into some of them once we get into the plot. I will point out that there is a character named Bulldog. There are two like big gremlin type dudes. They, they're kind of like. Yeah, they're kind of like orcs. They're kind of like the Gamorrean guards from Jabba's palace. <laughs> yeah. Their names are Bulldog and Fat Dog. <laughs> they're two, they're Mr. Boogalow's two bodyguards. They're both bald and they both have ogre teeth. They have like mm-hmm. underbite fangs, yep. which never explained why they have that, but they have orc teeth. And uh, when I was looking at them, I was like, what? I'm getting like calls to another movie and i realized like they look like they would fit in with the cast of alien three they would be like prisoners on the planet on the space colony there yeah it's it's almost a a little shocking that the character the british actor playing bulldog Derek dedman isn't in alien three because he would have been perfect uh he lived uh 1940 through 2014 and his other his credits include time bandits brazil robin hood prince of thieves and he also, one of his last appearances was in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I think he's like a barkeep in that. Yeah. But yeah, a, a character actor who just did a lot of TV work. Oh, and another major appearance in this film. This is not a lackey or a henchman. This is just a, like a normal person outside of the industry. But we have this landlady. Alfie's landlady is played by Miriam Margolis. Born 1941, English-Australian actress with extensive stage, screen, and TV credits, but many filmgoers probably know her best as Professor Sprout from the Harry Potter films. Uh, She also had a major role in 1993's The Age of Innocence. I believe that's a Martin Scorsese film. Uh, For for that, she won a BAFTA. Uh, She was also on the TV series Call the Midwife. So if you've seen the various seasons to call the midwife you've probably uh, seen her and she also has a small appearance in 1986's little shop of horrors uh she plays the i think she's a dental assistant or something uh when we get into the 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 dentist office scenes so she plays yeah the landlady of alfie in this movie one of the two heroes and her main uh point is that she is encouraging Alfie to stop trying to write good music and to start trying to write bad music that will make (laughs) money because she wants the rent. Right. Right. But then also she's like, yeah, your your the stuff, your unsuccessful stuff also kind of reminds me of the good old days. Oh, yeah. Um, So she's she's also supportive of that to a point. Um, So in, in many respects, she's she's Alfie's biggest supporter. All right. And finally, I do want to mention that the art director on this film is Hans Jürgen Kaibach, who lived 1930 through 1995, German art director and production designer with credits going back to the 1950s. Uh, Of note, he won an Academy Award for his work on 73's Cabaret and was nominated for an Emmy for his work on the 1978 miniseries The Holocaust. Uh, But he worked on a lot of smaller budget genre films as well, including the 1972 Jess Franco slasher, uh, Der Todesrasher, the the Death Avenger, Von Soho, as well as uh, 1961's The Return of Dr. Mabuse. Um, I'm never sure if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, Mabuse. 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 Uh, But that one starred Gert Frobe, who, of course, would go on to play Goldfinger. Oh, okay. But uh, but yeah, German talent, I guess, of note, because this film, though it is seemingly sort of set 
in New York, like a futuristic New York City. It was filmed in Berlin. And so throughout the picture, you see a lot of examples of really like cool, futuristic looking architecture. You see a monorail and stuff like that. That's because they filmed it in Germany. Hmm. Okay. Like there, there are scenes late in the picture where there'll be like some sort of crazy building in the background. And you might think, is this a map painting? And you're like, no, no, it's just Berlin. It's just, that's, that's what's going on here. Oh, okay. So yeah, that, that explains some things. I didn't realize, uh, because I was very unclear about where the movie was supposed to take place. Uh, you, you tell me it's supposed to be New York. Okay. But it seems like it, it's set in the world. It's set mm-hmm. in earth 1994. Yeah. 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 Basically. And almost to drive that point home, are we, are we going to the plot now? Let's get into it. Let's discuss the plot of the apple. Okay, we open on a sea of flags, the flags of all the nations, like outside the U.N. building. And there is an up-tempo disco beat chugging along, and we hear people letting out shrieks of excitement. So screaming crowd, uh, the drums are building, there's anticipation coming, and then the title reads, The Apple. And now suddenly we're on the ground, and to set the scene there are there are throngs of people surging through the streets toward a giant building. This building is, uh, I would say, it's like if the OCP headquarters were a concert <laughs> venue. This, this yep. huge angular mass of concrete that is supposed to let us know that things ain't right. Also in the same frame, giant metal towers and uh, this futuristic elevated tram or monorail. Uh, so I guess this is probably some some real world uh, Berlin architecture, maybe. Uh, I don't know for sure. But it yeah, it, it is obviously used in the context of the movie the same way the architecture in RoboCop is used. It's to make you feel uneasy about the the aesthetics and values of the future. It feels uninviting. It feels oppressive. Hmm. Also to let us know that this is a bad future, we see police on boxy motorcycles cruising around through the crowds. There's just this vague aura of authoritarianism. And uh, the cars, the cars are also these like boxy <laughs> 70s models, but with a bunch of extra doodads stuck on top of them, like these big, tall spoilers coming off of them and just these bubbles and I don't know, things glued onto the hood and stuff. It actually, it looks like the car that Homer Simpson designs. You're right. It really does look like like the Simpsons car. Um, but, oh man, yeah, I love these big boxy future cars. I, lo- I, I just love future cars in general when they pop up in films. Like movies we've talked about before, uh, Time Cop has some great future cars. Uh, goodness, there's another Wait. one. I vaguely remember that. What what were they like in Time Cop? Were they just like boxes with wheels and no windows? Basically, yeah. There were no yeah. windows on it. So in a way, they were very convincing. <laughs> oh, but this movie has another one of my favorite takes on uh, the future, which is futuristic fashion. Everybody is wearing clothes made out of reflective materials. So just mm-hmm. all the clothes are shiny. It's like they all, on the way to the concert here, decided to make tunics and conical hats out of aluminum foil. Yeah. <laughs> So out in front of this arena, it says World Vision Song Festival. I think this is supposed to be an evolution of the Eurovision Song Contest, which I've never actually seen. So I hope I'm not describing it wrong. But this is like a competition where musical acts from around the world compete for popularity and stardom. Uh, they all like, I guess, have an original song or prepare a performance. And then they it's like American Idol, like they perform on stage and the audience votes. Do you, do you know if that's roughly right? I believe that's the case. I've only ever I only ever see clips from Eurovision. And, uh, and of course, the clips are going to be the most outlandish 
uh, examples, uh, as well as examples of things that maybe do not um, cross cultural lines as easily. Uh, so there's a lot of like, what is this weirdness going on with the, the clips you tend to see from Eurovision? But I've never sat down and, and watched it, so I don't know no. like the full diversity of acts going on. I've never seen it itself, but years ago I watched a Will Ferrell movie uh, about oh, it. That's so right. Like, have, have you seen that too? He play. I think he, he and somebody else are like an Icelandic act that's competing. I remember seeing the trailers for it, but I don't okay. think I watched it. Anyway, so within the context of the plot of the Apple, the World Vision Song Festival is uh, is like the biggest pop culture and media event in the world. We are told that it has over two billion simultaneous viewers. <laughs> and later we will find out that it's not only the hottest show on TV, basically the entire culture and even the government is based around it. Yep, yep. Like everything is riding on this this contest. So it's like you win this, you not only become a big star and get a cash prize or whatever, you essentially like become the governing party in the in the government. Yeah, your music becomes law. So we go inside and see the see the venue and we see the first musical act. And it is a song performed by the characters we will come to know as Pandy and Dandy. Pandy and Dandy are dressed like sexual power rangers and yeah. they are surrounded by a, a kaleidoscope of lights and disco dancers. And they're performing this song, the theme of which is BIM. Don't don't ask questions about BIM. It is a call and response song. Somehow the audience knows the song already. So uh, Dandy calls out, he screams the letter B, and the crowd knows to scream back, I am, which <laughs> I thought was kind of interesting because I understood this as a contest where you play the song in public for the first time. Yeah, yeah, that would seem to be the case. Yeah. Like, so I don't know if they leaked notes uh, early and they're like, hey, uh, Dandy is going to say B and you need to say I am. Now, it's possible we're coming in like in the middle of a 20 minute long song and he's been doing the BIM thing long enough that the audience has figured it out. Uh, but so, the, you know, they repeat the call and response a bit and then the beat stops and a guitar player who looks like Rod Stewart in Hunter S. Thompson sunglasses leans into a microphone and goes, do the BIM. <laughs> Bim is a tremendous start to the film, I, I have to say, both musically and visually. This is one of the top tracks. It just we, we get off to a great start with the Apple. Yes, it's amazing. It's uh, and the the constant references to the to the concept of Bim and the power of Bim without any explanation of what Bim is. That was what drew me into this movie and just like attached. It was like a magnet for my mind. Uh, yeah. It kind of reminded me of. Um, so I think we talked about this a little bit off mic, but back in the day, I saw Highlander 2, The Quickening, before I had ever seen the original Highlander. So I didn't mm -hmm. have context from the first movie. And in Highlander 2, The Quickening, they talk about The Quickening, but it's never adequately explained what it is. So I thought it was hilarious that it's this movie where the subtitle is The Quickening, and their parts were just like... Christophe Lambert looks into the camera and goes, the quickening, but what is it? And that's what BIM feels like here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not really established what it might be, but it's clearly important. It's, uh, it's a way of life. It's a personal philosophy. It's, um, it, it brings people together. Uh, it's what everybody wants. 
Exactly. So, yeah, the guitar player says, do the BIM. Mm-hmm. And then they do the BIM. Uh, the band comes back in and the song really gets cooking. And I cannot stress enough, this musical number rocks. It absolutely rocks. Yeah, yeah. This is not a musical number that people were walking out during. It's impossible. You can't walk out during uh, during the BIM. It's just totally captivating. Now, that's my subjective reaction. There's also how the like the implied the narrative of the movie wants you to take this song clearly what it's supposed to impress upon you is a feeling of overwhelming hyper stimulation this song is just blasting your brain and there are fast constant cuts showing weird images bright lights flashing colors Bodies, reflections bouncing everywhere, musicians, dancers. The band has at least three different keyboard players that you can see. One of them is playing like a gold pulpit made out of keyboards. Another is playing a humongous double-sided lucite keytar with yeah. one end terminating in this big sharp angle. So it's it's almost like a keytar is like fixed with a bayonet. The <laughs> band also has a horn section, but the horns are... Maybe they're real instruments, but I didn't recognize them. So if they are real instruments, I, they're not ones I'm familiar with. They're, one person is playing what looks like a giant elongated pyramid box. Somebody else is playing a capital L-shaped saxophone. So I, I think these are supposed to be like science fiction horns. I mean, clearly they have perfected disco rock and roll. And, uh, and it requires technology that we don't have today. Only in the future of 1994 is it possible. So Dandy and Pandy start singing, and here are some of the lyrics to the BIM song. It goes, there ain't no good, there ain't no bad, there ain't no happiness, there ain't no sad? No, it's there ain't no tears, there ain't no love, there ain't no hate, there's only power, BIM is the power. And then here's the chorus, and I truly could not tell which of the following they were saying. The chorus is either, hey, 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 BIM's on the way, or hey, 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 BIM's the only way. BIM's the only way makes more sense, but I've always heard it in my my brain as BIM's on the way, which is confusing because BIM is not on the way. BIM is already here and established. Right. Mr. Tops is on the way, but we don't <laughs> find out about that until later on, much later on in the picture. And they don't want you to know that Mr. Tops is on the way. I mean, it, right. I guess either way, BIM is on the way because it's like, yes, BIM is already here, but more BIM is on the way. So it's like you're not going to run out of BIM. There's BIM. There's continuous BIM on the way. BIM continues to expand much like the universe. Yes, exactly. Uh, but I guess in addition to so BIM is on the way no matter what. But BIM, in addition to being on the way, might also be the only way. Yes. <laughs> Well, what else can BIM teach us? I don't. Oh, well, so there are more lyrics. There's there ain't no pride. There ain't no shame. There ain't no sympathy. There ain't no blame. There ain't no pleasure. There ain't no pain. There's only power. BIM is the power. Uh, And uh, Rob, I don't know if you have any comments on the visuals that are accompanying this. It's it's kind of hard to describe. It's just absolutely visually overwhelming. The dancers, the light show. Uh, it's uh, it's too much to take in. Yeah, it's like lens flare, like crazy. So many colors. It's just a complete, uh, you know, brain melting uh, rock disco performance. And it, I think it, the idea is that that overwhelming uh, audiovisual stimulation is supposed to help implant the meaning of the song. And the meaning of the song is discard or surrender everything that formerly gave meaning to your life. There's no love, no truth, no beauty, no friendship. There's only BIM. BIM is your God now. 
do what thou bim shall be the whole of the law. And the crowd loves it. They are screaming for the BIM. They want nothing more than for BIM to annihilate them and absorb their memories. Uh, And so the song kind of like it fades into the background and we go backstage to a futuristic control room that is tracking the audience's reaction to the song. And here we meet several other major characters. We meet Mr. Bugalo, who is... A physically small but clearly powerful man wearing a purple velvet suit and a bow tie. And he has kind of the energy of a, a, a character in like a medieval movie who's like a like a corrupt cardinal of the church or something. Yeah, uh, strong Ming the Merciless vibes as well. Yes, yes. And everyone's eager to please him. Uh, he is the head of the Bugalo Music Company with which Uh, Pandy and Dandy are signed. So they're like his star act. And he's eager to track their success and see that they win this World Vision song contest. He promises to make them the biggest star of our decade. Also, we meet Shake, uh, who we described earlier. Shake is Mr. Bugalo's top lieutenant, and he is wearing a reflective metallic robe and has this awesome ensemble of jewelry and makeup that make him like sort of like a human precious gem. Uh, <laughs> Shake is some kind of marketing expert. He's been tracking biometric feedback from the audience on the computer. Yeah, and again, Shake is just fabulous. And in the background, uh, Bugalo has a this general ensemble of cronies and yes men as well as the uh, the two bald bodyguards who you know could have been from fury 151 uh, or who could have been like a wrestling tag team uh, along the lines of like nasty boys or whatever oh yeah i mean you can imagine uh <laughs> bulldog and fat dog going for the tag team titles for sure fat dog by the way played by german actor gunther nothoff who i think mm-hmm. also did some special effects work in german cinema you know, I had one other comment about the fashion that we start to notice uh, in the scene, which is that in the future, it's popular to wear jackets, not only with big shoulder pads. So like, you know, jackets with substantial shoulder padding were, I think, common in the 80s and especially in 80s movies that envisioned the future. Mm-hmm. But here they're beyond pads. The pads like curl up at the ends. So your shoulders, the shoulders basically have horns. <laughs> it's one of the many details in this picture and a lot of you know futuristic films of this of this sort that it really drives home that basically the way science fiction works is like what if all of the things I'm uneasy about now are just more in the future. Yeah. Um and that includes everything from, you know, uh, you know, dystopian elements of society to just like shoulder pads. Like I don't really get shoulder pads, but I guess in the future they will just be even bigger. That's the only way it can possibly go. There's no coming back from whatever shoulder pad level we are currently at. It's only only going to get wider. It's all uh, if these trends continue. A eh? um, so we cut back to the BIM song. It's still going on. Dandy and Pandy at this point they're done with the lyrics and they're just singing ha 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 ha. <laughs> they're like laughing at you for being brainwashed. Uh, and at some point the song begins to incorporate a martial arts component as well do you remember this like the kung fu um, yeah, shouts yeah. and yeah yeah it's just it's re- like at this point they're just in full um encore mode like the song really should have ended like 10 minutes ago but you can't stop once the crowd is this into the act it ends with them sing- singing hey 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 bims on the way like 50 times in a row the crowd loves it. They absolutely lose their minds. They rush the stage. I think we can see riot police with batons having to hold people back from the dancers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, and then we're back in the control room, and Shake announces that they have achieved a new biometric record, which is 150 heartbeats. Maybe that's beats per minute. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think, again, the way we're supposed to understand this is that the this, like, biometric information is reflective of a cold, calculating way to measure the success of a popular song as opposed to, I don't know, by listening for applause or something. Yeah. Mr. Boogalow says, gentlemen, I predict our BIM song is going to take this competition by storm. And then he howls like a wolf. <laughs> and he says he's got another henchman named Ashley. I don't think we've mentioned already, but he's like, Ashley, prepare some BIM merchandise. And Ashley says, ooh, how about BIM T-shirts? <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, Boogalow is not impressed by this. He's like, use your imagination, Ashley. This is 1994. And I got to agree with uh, with the devil here. Like, BIM t-shirts, come on. Yeah, you can do better than that, Ashley. Uh, Ashley's tremendous. He's played by British actor Leslie Meadows. Um, yeah, just he has this kind of like great spaced out vibe to him. Um, it's really hard for me to nail down exactly why I love this performance so much, but it's huh. just anytime uh, Leslie is on the screen, uh, you know, busting out some merch ideas or whatever, uh, it, it's just hilarious. When he reveals the bimball machine later, I, I about <laughs> lost it. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or 
I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Um, okay, so here we go to see the next act in the World Vision Song Competition, and it is Alfie and BB performing a song called Love the Universal Melody. They're, they're going to be our heroes for the film. This is a, a couple of humble singers from Moose Jaw, Canada. And they they come out, and compared to the BIM act, they are incredibly stripped down. They, they don't have backup dancers. They don't have references to BIM. It's just a man and a woman in, like, white clothing singing along with one acoustic guitar. And actually, we can hear there's a full backing track, including drums and bass, but there's no band visible on the stage. It's just Alfie strumming his acoustic and the two of them singing into one microphone. And uh, the lyrics begin like this. You're the light within my darkness. You're my shelter from the storm. When my hope grows dim and fear shuts me in, you become my open door. And the crowd hates it. <laughs> we see a, a, there's a sneering boy there. He says, what the hell is this? And the girl next to him says, shh, it's a love song. But I mean, what's a love song? The, the boy is clearly disgusted. Another guy jumps up and screams, do the BIM. <laughs> And you know what? They're absolutely right. This yeah. is such yeah. a stark contrast between how rocking that first number was. And yes, it's a, it's a tonal shift, but this number just does not hit. It just, yeah. it just, it just falls flat on the stage. And to a certain extent, yeah, with these characters where it seems like this is the way we're supposed to feel, but it also seems that this, this movie wants us to feel like this track, the universal love song, despite it's just tremendously sappy lyrics and uh, and so forth, that it is touching us in a place that we didn't know still existed. It is supposed yes. to, on some level, just resonate deeply with us. And, I mean, this is all subjective, but absolutely it does not for me. This, this song sucks. <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah, so the way I was thinking of it, there, there's two different ways to process the song, and the one is the way we are meant to by the filmmakers, which is that it is the wholesome contrast to the previous song we heard. You know, the BIM song is a gaudy, soulless, technological product, a satellite-televised golden calf designed to extract money and obedience from an unthinking audience. And in contrast to that, Alfie and B are supposed to be a breath of fresh air. Look at them. They're so nice. They're so earnest. They come in with a song that is simple and true and has a genuine heart in the middle of this baffling and heartless world. But the problem is it just doesn't match with your experience of these songs back to back in the movie, which and that experience is that from my point of view, and I think probably most viewers would agree, the BIM song is awesome and love the universal melody sucks. It is so bad. Um, and like and so when the audience like get up and start uh, booing and heckling them, it's just like, yeah, I, I, yeah, get it off my TV. 
Yeah, yeah. The, the, the reality here is that the Universal Love Song feels like it was built by committee. It feels yes. like it is the hollow product of uh, corporate scheming, while the BIM song just like rocks. It gets your heart <laughs> pumping. It feels very much a part of you. Yes, yeah, totally. You could say this is a problem with the Apple. Actually, I would say it adds to my enjoyment of the Apple, yeah. but it's a problem mm-hmm. with the Apple the way it is supposed to be processed, which is that everything in the movie that's supposed to be evil and soulless and a reflection of a world gone wrong is so good and so much fun. (laughs) And everything that is supposed to be good and pure and sympathetic is boring at best and disgustingly (laughs) treacly and fake at worst. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The the film is, is, will periodically preach at you that, you know, rock, disco, drugs, sex, it's all evil and dangerous, man. But at the same time, yeah, they're, they're, delivering these songs about drugs and sex that are and and sometimes you know, with with outright depictions of hell that are so much more fun than anything uh, else that's presented on the opposite side of the argument. So while Alfie and BB are singing, we we go back to the control room with Shake and Mr. Bugalo and they start getting a little concerned because what do you know actually despite the fact that the audience initially hates love the universal melody, they start kind of quieting down. The heckling dies down and then they start responding well like it's actually breaking through uh the the heartbeats are climbing on the computer screen and we can see like we see shots of the audience and some of them are crying or they're like hugging their their boyfriend or girlfriend and shake insists that the song cannot actually be popular because they're singing a love song yuck love songs are out so ultimately, uh, Bugalo and Shake decide they decide to uh, resort to sabotage. They in, insert what is called the red tape into the the PA system, and it starts playing excruciating high pitch noises over the sound system and mm-hmm. ruins Alfie and BB's performance. Yeah, and uh, I. Uh... I like to think that this is the same tape the UK government uses in the Black Mirror episode, the national anthem. Uh, you know, it's like, like, quick, get the red tape. We've got to, we got to keep people from watching slash enjoying this. Right. So uh, I guess Bim Song wins after all, even though Alfie and BB, it seems like they were on course to win over the audience and win the contest, but then they, they got cheated out of it. Hmm. Then we cut to this great scene where Bugalo is uh, he's, he's, he's walking and talking and he's answering questions from the international media in various languages is seemingly fluent in any tongue you could possibly throw at him because, you know, at this point, you know, this is this character is supposed to be Satan. He is I have or not names. Satan. He's yeah. the pitch of this picture. You know, he is he's a demonic figure. So, of course, he knows all human languages. That's that's right. And the reporters are asking these questions. Oh, one one reporter's like, I understand the government has adopted your BIM song as part of the national fitness program. Is that true? And I was like, wow, that <laughs> happened fast. <laughs> it's just that good a song. People were like, OK, let's license it. Let's, let's do it. Let's make it a law. Now, Rob, I think this was your note, but one of the uh, one of the reporters says something to him. They're like, Mr. Bugalo, what about something for the billion of Americans who are watching? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This, this is another one of the moments in the film that just makes me laugh for no reason that I can really uh, uh, identify. I don't know. Maybe it's just kind of like the awkward way that he asks it. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and of course, where this interaction is going with this particular reporter is also kind of hilarious. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Because there's also a question that's like, um, we heard there was another song that came close to beating the Bim song. Is it true this competition is rigged? <laughs> and Mister Boogalow threatens him. He like pulls the reporter aside. He's like, "What's your name? Who do you write for? You print that, and you'll find yourself on the unemployment line by tomorrow." Hmm. So next we go to Mr. Boogalow's victory party, and his apartment is just full of sci-fi showbiz partygoers. I wanted to point out a couple of great props. Uh, there is his trophy for winning the World Vision Song Contest, which is a giant gold pyramid with an extremely pointy top. And everybody's drinking out of transparent drinking glasses which are gigantic clear triangular prisms. Ashley explains that these are BIM glasses. <laughs> See, now this is the Ashley magic that we were expecting. Right. Uh, And so Boogalow, he raises his BIM glass uh, and says, ladies and gentlemen, a toast to BIM. And everyone shouts BIM. Uh, And this is where we get some more of Ashley's merchandising. Of course, there is the BIM ball machine. But then we get to the really important uh, piece of merch that will pervade the rest of the movie, the BIM mark. And what is the BIM mark? Ashley demonstrates how it works. It is a shiny triangular sticker. That's that's the BIM mark. <laughs> yep, yep. You, you can wear it wherever you want to. That's established. Uh, so you, you have a, a certain amount of freedom. But eventually it will become law that you do have to wear one <laughs> and yeah. make sure that uh, law enforcement can see it on your person. Uh, you know, obviously this has, you know, sci-fi dystopian shades of like uh, the Mark of Cain and so forth. Mark uh, of the you know, Beast. Yeah. Mark of the Beast and and all. So it's uh, uh, it's it's a lot of fun. But also, yeah, clearly Ashley nailed this one. This one's going to really catch on uh, I mean, to the point where it becomes uh, a mandate. Right. When, when Ashley debuts it, he says, you can stick it anywhere. <laughs> Mr. Boogalow is pleased. He commands Ashley to make sure that everyone is wearing one immediately. Mm-hmm. And then somebody goes up to uh, to Dandy and Pandy, goes up to Pandy and says, Pandy, may I bimunize you? And then puts the bim mark on her. Yep. Right on the forehead. So Mr. Boogalow invites BB and Alfie to the party at his apartment. Um, this would seem to be, you know, the, the move of a gracious winner uh, inviting his uh, competition to celebrate with him. Uh, but we see them argue about it before going. Alfie doesn't trust Mr. Boogalow. There's just something <laughs> about the way that he is Satan incarnate that you can't quite trust. Uh, and BB counters that, hey, you know, we need an agent. Uh, he could make us a big star. He made Pandy and Dandy. He made the BIM. So maybe he'll make us. Yeah. I mean, it, this is you say what you will, Mr. Mr. Boogalow, but he can get things done. He is a yeah. star maker. There's no questioning that. Uh, so they go to the party. And for some reason, when they arrive at the party, Alfie is dressed like Indiana Jones without a hat and BB is dressed like a flight attendant. <laughs> yeah, they're so square. They have yet to be transformed by the BIM. I mean, look at their shoulders. Yeah, I know. Oh, where are the pads? Where yeah. are the shoulder pads? Where are the yeah. horns? <laughs> uh, but the here we get like the seduction into the shallow life of showbiz luxury. Uh, Boogalow and the BIM organization offer them hospitality and compliments on their music and bowls of champagne. Yes, I said that right. It's like a soup bowl that they offer them with champagne in it. I've been thinking a lot recently about champagne glasses and about how the style seems to change because uh, I was uh, I really enjoyed watching the period series The Gilded Age, and mm. they're constantly drinking champagne out of more like a coupe glass as mm. opposed to a, like a fluted uh, glass like you would tend to 
uh, except champagne in today. Uh, so if champagne in the future of 1994 is served in a, uh, a wide glass, in this case, even wider than a coupe glass, it, in a way, it's like a return to a previous uh, fad and then an exaggeration of that fad as opposed to a continuation of the current trend, right? I would agree with that, except that it's huge. It's like everybody gets their own individual punch bowl of champagne. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 kind of like the whole like punch bowl uh, margarita thing or where like a fishbowl margarita, right? Where they yeah. actually have like a gummy fish in there. Uh, oh, and the, Mr. Boogalow makes fun of Alfie because he doesn't drink alcohol. Uh, <laughs> and there's there's clearly a divide. Like Alfie wants to resist their charms, but BB, she just wants to dive right in. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dandy of Pandy and Dandy, uh, right from the very first moment, just starts hitting on her. He's like, oh, would you like to go up to the roof garden? I have unspecified pills. Would you like some? And she's like, yeah, sounds good. I, I don't think he even tells her what the pills do no. uh, in even broad strokes. He's just kind of like, they're no big deal. Would you like yep. some? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And she accepts and he's like, wow, you really are. Uh, you're, you're a hillbilly, you know, you're, you're yeah. from the sticks. And she's like, I don't understand what that means. And then, yeah, they're just having pills and hanging out and, and, and smooching. And then interestingly, at about 17 minutes into the movie, we get our first song and dance number that occurs outside of a within narrative musical performance. Mm-hmm. Did you notice this? So it's like. A little jarring because the two songs that we've already heard were at a concert within the the film. This is the first song that's just people dancing and singing into the camera. That's right. I you know I hadn't really thought about it before, but perhaps because I having seen it before uh, in the past as a riff tracks movie and having not thought about it too much then, it, I didn't think too much about how yeah yeah suddenly we're in full blown musical mode and not just musical concert picture. Uh, but the song is called Made For Me. It is sung by Dandy to BB saying, you're made for me, created for me. I'll be your man. You'll be my woman. Uh, this song isn't all that great, but it does have a great dance number associated with it. Like in the inside the, the penthouse, we just see all of the wacky dancers and their amazing costumes. And uh, it's yeah, it's not it's not the best tune in the movie, but it is, I think, one of the best dance numbers. Yeah, the tune kind of has a sort of 1950s kind of feel to it, you know, Um, but it's still better than anything Alfie's bringing to the table thus far. And I like the scenes with the various party goers. It has kind of a kind of a Rocky Horror feel to it, uh, just in terms of like the the visuals, you know, with all of these party goers in strange costumes, kind of like you see in the the time warp um, uh, section of Rocky Horror. But of course, it's a totally different song. Absolutely. But yeah, I see what you're saying about the visual comparison. It is similar. Uh, and I love the way it's got like at the party, the like the hip people in the squares are all singing and dancing alike. So like the lawyers mm-hmm. and the bodyguards are singing in perfect harmony with all of the 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 cool showbiz people. Yeah, it looks so fun. This had to it had to have been a fun shoot. So at the end of the song, Alfie comes up to the roof garden and he catches BB kissing Dandy. Uh, then Alfie grabs her arm and they run out of the apartment. And at this point, I was wondering, like, wait a minute, are they together or not? I on I couldn't tell. Yeah, I, I now that you mention it, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it, certainly, this picture is from a time period in which it's impossible that two a man and a woman are not romantically uh, linked <laughs> if they are seen together. Uh, but the the movie doesn't really put in a lot of legwork to. Uh, really extrapolate on this uh, uh, this relationship. Yeah. 
Uh, so anyway, the next day, uh, we see Bugalo arriving at his uh, office building. He's uh, he's dressed like a magician whose act would be based on sawing women in half. And mm-hmm. also his bald bodyguards have changed costumes. They've gone from like their white suits to these all black outfits. Um, and we move inside the building because BB and Alfie show up to sign a contract with Boogalow. Alfie clearly thinks this is a bad idea, but BB cannot be talked out of it. So they're going to go have their meeting with, with Boogalow. And they've got to wait here in the lobby of the building uh, to meet with him. Yeah, we get a great atrium scene. Uh, it might be like an airport or something. But certainly, I get get vibes of a of a massive hotel atrium. Uh, I love it when there's an obvious atrium in a sci-fi movie or a TV show. Uh, it, it's 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 often very effective. I'm, I'm not knocking it as a uh, as a as a location uh, because it 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 often works. Uh, it's just something about this huge uh, interior space, this cathedral of of, of modern life. Oh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Though I think we're supposed to understand the scene as being they're kind of like being ground down and humiliated by being forced to wait mm. to see Boogalow after they've been invited. And so they're waiting alongside all these other acts that are aspiring to sign with him. And the other acts that we see there in the waiting area include like a Baroque vampire funk band who brought their instruments, including a full drum kit, mm-hmm. a sci-fi chorus dancer troupe wearing diamond bathing suits that are they're called Ballet 2000. Uh, we see like these feather boa opera singers. Uh, there's a wizard in a pointy hat and several clowns. <laughs> this is the riffraff for sure. <laughs> is Mr. Boogalow signing clowns? Does he represent clowns? Um, you know, I guess it's possible that he might find the right clown that he could transform into something that would be successful. Uh, and, and I think maybe that's part of his message to them. It's like right now you are nothing. You were unformed. You were at best raw material that the BIM can transform through its alchemy into something successful. Right now you're no better than uh, a, uh, a birthday party wizard or miscellaneous clowns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so here we get a song sung by Mr. Boogalow called Show Business, uh, <laughs> where he sings about how he plans to exploit all these people and lie to them and trick them, uh, and about how the world is is cruel and, and hollow. Uh, the chorus of the song goes, life is nothing but show business in 1994. We fight for the spotlight. We kill for encore. Life is nothing but show business. The world's a cabaret. We live for the fortune. We die for the fame. This song is also pretty great, especially for the dance number, which is fantastic. Great dance number. It's our first song to feature uh, Mr. Boogalow as the as the main vocalist. And his his singing style, it's more like a flat spoken word yeah. uh, style, but it's tremendous. He's like, you know, he's, he's talking about like a puppet on a string, like a monkey on a swing. Like that's very much <laughs> the, the delivery style. Uh, and often while he's, again, looking directly at us, yes. uh, directly into the camera. It's great. So eventually, Alfie and BB, they go up to his office. Uh, but wait a minute, wasn't he just down in the lobby with them singing the song? Mm, uh, well, it, yeah. This is one of the many questions raised in musicals about, like, what is the level of reality in the narrative when people are in a place singing a song? Anyway, they go up to his office. Uh, they, you know, they come in the door, they go past all the the, the bodyguards and the lawyers. Uh, they meet with Mr. Boogalow's lawyers, who are uh, uh, introduced as James Clark and Clark James. Okay, <laughs> And this is the signing the contract scene. I think you probably understand what's going on here. So Boogalow is 
trying to sign them on to his record company or maybe as their agent. It, it's not exactly clear, but uh, there, there's no there are no surprises here. The contract is a deal with the devil. They would be signing away everything, their rights to their music, their control over their careers, their souls, basically. Uh, and once again, Alfie is aware of the danger, but BB is portrayed as too entranced by the promise of stardom. She just wants to sign on the dotted line and get it done. I mean, Alfie also just comes off as maybe a, t- a bit too protective of his uh, his talent here, because to, to yeah. be clear, clear again, Bugalo is a man that can make stars and does make stars, and yeah, he's going to take an enormous cut, uh, and he's going to kind of sort of own your soul. But this is a man that can and will transform you into what you need to be. So you're not selling your soul for pennies here. But Bugalo really does put the pressure on because Alfie wants time to review the contract and Bugalo's like, uh, you've got another minute, uh, you've got another meeting in 20 minutes with the fashion designer, so you better sign it quick, you know, and you, by, by tomorrow it's too late, so sign it now or don't sign it. Uh, and then, uh, oh, and then he's also like, we've already sold your first album and BB is confused. <laughs> She's like, we haven't made it yet. And then Shake explains, first you sell it, then you make it. That's marketing. Yep. Canon films, baby. (laughs) So um, while BB is signing her contract, Alfie has some kind of apocalyptic vision. The first one is of an earthquake and great winds, uh, but then it comes back to the room and it's like it's all in his head. Or is it? Uh, Yeah. So this uh, this again gets into the unreality versus reality uh, question in the film, because I think you can kind of go down two different streets of interpretation. Either Bugalo is the literal devil, or the Moose Jaw Kid here is beginning to break hardcore from reality. And so instead of seeing a world of mundane excess and greed, he is seeing a clear supernatural threat to life and spiritual liberty. Mm, yeah. And if it's the former, yeah, you have, you have full license to be alarmed and to yell and shout and try and drag your friend or girlfriend out of there. But if... If it's if it's the the latter, then I don't know, Alfie. I think maybe you're more of a danger than anything. Yeah, well, possibly. So uh, Alfie, he he has this vision. Then he comes back from it. So he sort of is calmed down, and he reluctantly goes to sign his contract. But then a second. Hallucination or vision begins, which is a darkening at noon. Lightning strikes. Uh, No one, again, sees the darkening but him. And the next prophetic vision is a musical number. And here is where we finally get to the title track, The Apple. Uh, Stupendous. This is one of, if not the greatest, uh, dance numbers and performances in the entire picture. This alone is worth, worth sitting around for. If you have any intention of walking out on a number in the apple this is not it this one is tremendous so this number is set in hell in like the caverns of hell but it also has garden of eden themes uh, mm-hmm. so they're all in this misty cave alfie and bb are suddenly dressed up like adam and eve they're naked except for strategic leaf coverings mr Bugalo is dressed like a halloween store dracula costume yeah, yeah, with one horn uh, yep. on uh, to, to to show that yeah he is the devil. We got some googly-eyed skeletons in the background. Uh, the two bald bodyguards here are shirtless in black leather pants and studded belts, wearing these dingy dog head masks. They mm-hmm. remind me of that that horribly creepy dog mask guy in The Shining. Yeah, yeah, definite definite vibes of, of all that. Also, great gels for the lighting yes. here. We got like red and green. It's it's wonderful. Uh, Shake is dressed like a giant serpent. <laughs> of course. 
Alfie looks around. He he turns to BB. He's like, hey, you know, this is hell. That's bad. We should go. And BB is like, no, I love it. And she should love it because it, it looks awesome. Once more, the film is that it's most fun and enthralling when it's showing us the dark side. And yeah, this is nothing new. I mean, uh, I, I feel like this is basically the, the situation you have with Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. Mm. Inferno is is fun and wicked and funny and insightful and full of creativity. But, uh, and, you know, the, the rest of the Divine Comedy is also great and classic, yes. But Paradise is significantly less fun <laughs> compared yes. to Inferno. Certainly less memorable to readers. Yeah. And this is a version of hell you can get behind. You expect Coffin Joe to show up at any moment. Coffin Joe would love this place. Oh, would he ever? I mean, he's very he's very much along the the Count Bugula lines here. So, uh, <laughs> Count Bugula transforms BB's leaf suit into a sparkling fancy dress and shows her around, and he introduces her to Dandy, who now in hell here is wearing sparkling gold briefs and nothing else. So in this mode, uh, to call back to Rocky Horror once again, he's very reminiscent of of the appearance of Rocky, except again he has the the big uh, mass of Roger Daltrey hair. Yeah, yeah. He's maybe not as cut as Rocky, but he has all the charisma and charm. He like this is a man at ease in a golden <laughs> pair of underwear. So they bring out the hors d'oeuvre. They're making all these references to the hors d'oeuvre, and it's this big plastic apple. And they hand it to BB, and everybody starts screaming for her to taste it. They're all yelling, taste it, taste it. And meanwhile, while while Dandy is seducing BB and trying to get her to taste the apple, Pandy starts seducing Alfie. Uh, and we see a very interesting cast of characters all throughout hell here, all mm-hmm. I- encouraging BB to taste the apple. So some are like ladies in 17th century European clothes and bride of Frankenstein makeup, like Elsa Lanchester, mm-hmm. uh, several guys with no faces, just blank skin on the front of their heads. One guy with two faces, uh, randomly we see Napoleon. I'm almost positive that's supposed to be Napoleon. Like he's got his yep. hand in his shirt got the and everything. Hand in the shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, we also see, uh, uh, just like vampires running around. Oh, not just a vampire, Joe. It's an actual, actual, actual vampire. That is the chorus of the song. It's a natural, <laughs> natural, natural desire. Meet an actual, actual, actual <laughs> vampire. Who wrote oh, God. that? Uh, I, I don't know, know, but I love it. They and the the way the vampire lady like jumps up <laughs> like yeah. a cat at that moment, turns her cocks her head sideways. Tremendous. I'm going to say tremendous of about three dozen more times in this episode, but it's 100 percent accurate. Uh, Dandy, I, I got to give credit to Dandy on him selling this ridiculous song. By the way, like the parts where he's singing at the the crowd of of damned souls in the pit of hell, and he's mm-hmm. like, "Oh yeah." <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's kind of, theologically, it's kind of interesting, right? Because he's like, look at this apple. This is temptation and sin. This is what got you here. And they're like, yeah, it did. But man, that's a good apple. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and I, so I think the apple represents fame, or maybe it's just supposed to represent all temptations. Uh, but the core one would seem to be fame. Like BB wants to be a star and she is willing to put her soul in danger and abandon. I don't know, the good life in order to to have stardom. I'm just now noticing in the stills you included that the apple is half green and half red, much like yes. the gel lighting in the scene. So it's like half Fuji apple, half Granny Smith apple. So a half great apple and half just for cooking apple. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that until you pointed it out, but you're right. Yeah. 
Anyway, at the end of this, uh, this, this excellent song, uh, Alfie throws the contract on Boogalow's desk and he leaves without signing. He yells, you'll never get me. Never. <laughs> so this, but this hell vision was just in Alfie's head, right? So in reality, yeah. he's coming off like a completely unhinged person. Yes. Uh, yeah. He goes up to sign the contract. Everybody's standing around waiting. And then presumably he just suddenly like, I don't know, he, he like closes his eyes for a minute and then opens them and he's like, ah, you're all demons. <laughs> so Alfie leaves. BB tries to run after him, but Dandy and Pandy stop her. They're like, you don't owe him anything. Let him go. Uh, you're with us now. Pandy grabs her and says, whether you like it or not, you're a member of the BIM family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is sort of a transition point from here. I'm, I'm going to kind of uh, get a little more summary about the plot, uh, shift to a more zoomed out summary. I think we could focus on individual things that stood out to us. But we see uh, across a couple of songs, we see BB falling prey to the lifestyle. Her, her earnest and innocent personality is replaced by an addiction to shallow materialism, drugs and fame. And so the several songs in the sequence are, first of all, a song called How to Be a Master, which I thought is is it's the worst of the like bad people songs in the movie. I, I think it's really <laughs> awkward. Mr. It's Mr. Bugalo singing about how he is the boss and how he exploits everyone under him. I'm not sure where I would rank it in terms of the villain songs. It's definitely better than any of the good guys songs. In my opinion, I, I like that it had kind of a reggae beat. And again, <laughs> Mr. Bugalo is uh, is is the the main vocalist on it, uh, which I love. So I, I liked it. But then the next song I think is ripping. It is a hit. <laughs> that song is Speed, and it is a song in which BB sings about how she needs speed. Not just uh, speed, but speed. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And this song is dumb as hell, but it is so good. It actually, I would say it feels a lot like a Jim Steinman song. Can't you just hear oh, this yeah. song in Meatloaf's voice? Yep, yep. I think this would very much fit his uh, his general vibe, yeah. The, the dance number is biker-themed. The opening <laughs> lines of the song... Um, uh, they are uh, America, the land of the free is shooting up with pure energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this song's incredible. I, I suppose on some level it is trying to say something about the pace of American life and the expectations of success and work rate and so forth. But it's also a completely unsubtle track about just how freaking awesome amphetamines apparently are, at least according to uh, to Bibi. <laughs> she just really gives it all to perform this number. Just high energy as it should be for a song uh, called Speed. It, I mean, it's almost not double entendre. It's just, yeah. it, it seems like the more literal reading is that it is about drugs and that the it's like the secondary meaning is interpreting it having to do with the rate of things. Yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous. But also another success for Bibi because now, now her, her star is just continuing to skyrocket. Yeah, yeah. So we see her like talking to the press. A reporter comes up to her and says, how does it feel to be the world's number one BIM star? And BB says, it's frightening, but I put all my faith in Mr. Boogalow. And then uh, they're they're talking to Mr. Boogalow and they're like, oh, does BB have any plans for marriage? And uh, Mr. B says she is already married to the BIM. <laughs> oh, and if we didn't mention this already, BB is wearing the BIM mark now. She's got the triangle on her forehead. Yeah. Whoops. Took the mark of the beast. 
Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, okay, so meanwhile, Alfie is on the outs. We see him suffering without BB. He wants her back. He's feeling with a, you know, directionless. She's sort of moved on. Uh, there's a scene out in the street with Alfie's landlady where police are writing citations for anybody not wearing the BIM mark. It is now required by law. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Alfie refuses. He's like, I will not wear the BIM mark. And uh, also, this is the scene where it is made clear that he would be rich and successful if he would just cave in and write, if he would just give in and write bad, heartless music that the audiences crave, the BIM music. But he refuses. He's going to keep writing good, pure music about love. 
Yeah, with the impl- again, the implication being that he could write successful music if he wanted to, if he just sold out a little bit. But yeah. really, the picture gives us nothing to go on here because yes. his heartfelt, authentic songs are terrible. <laughs> uh, even though the movie would have us believe that they really resonate with people and are great and 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 uh, are just a vision of purity and innocence, uh, but no, what we 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 witness and hear in the in the in the movie does not deliver those vibes. Once again, that is correct. So his next new his new song, which we hear, is called "Where Has Love Gone." It's a sad love song as opposed to the hopeful love song from the beginning, uh, and it's about as good as "Love the Universal Melody," which is not very good. Yeah, and and it's I guess it's it's ultimately a flaw in the film because clearly the composers were able to bring it with the other numbers, the other genres, but the love songs, the songs that define our heroes uh, or our hero here, it clearly wasn't their strong suit, and so it deflates the power of our intended protagonists. You know, it's it's like if you were setting up Hercules in your action movie, but instead of Hercules like actually appearing strong and being able to beat people up, he instead comes off weak and people are like, oh, look how strong he is. But he's clearly not. Um, It also reminds me of I've seen some dramas before that are about fictional stand up comedians Mm. and the material they have the main character deliver is not convincingly funny. The, the, the show tries to make you feel like, like, oh, people were laughing. This is a talented comedian. But it's like, no, no, no. I can tell. I'm watching the show. It's not funny. And therefore, it deflates the power of the character because they are not it's hard to buy into the illusion if you can't give me something to go on there. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like they should just leave that off screen if they can't be confident that they can write really good material for them. Wouldn't that have been hilarious, though, in this movie? And they're like, and then Alfie delivers an amazing song. Uh, We're not going to show it to you, but it's better than anything you've heard in (laughs) this picture. That would be an interesting choice, actually. Uh, but uh, me, while Alfie is singing this clunker, I wanted to point out a good bit of environmental future texture I noticed, which is there's people in the background. They're out for a walk. They're dressed in their finest reflective tape, and they're pushing what I think are supposed to be uh, you know, strollers, prams, baby carriages, whatever you call them. Uh, and in this world, these strollers are designed so that babies are encased within a plastic bubble. <laughs> Do you see this? Yep, yep. <laughs> it's the only way to keep them safe, I guess, is from all the, uh, you know, the dangers of the future. Oh, and everywhere there are faceless police in all black carrying triangular riot shields in the shape of the BIM mark. Yeah, there's BIM propaganda everywhere. And, of course, lots of places to get the BIM burger. I'm very, I, I wish I knew more about BIM burger offerings. What's that BIM burger like? Does it have a nice triangular slice of cheese oh, triangular yeah. pickle i don't know is the maybe the, the the patty maybe the whole thing is triangular that uh, yeah you never see one but uh that's a good guess so alfie goes to the music studio he plays this sad love song for these greedy music executives they're not not Bugalo, some other you know, i guess rivals mm-hmm. and these guys are like mm, it's not what the kids are into write something that will be a hit and something with some bim to it and come back when you've got that for us <laughs> and alfie is very upset he goes to sit on a uh, sit in a park and stare at the ground looking sad and then a cop comes up to him and writes him a ticket for not wearing the bim mark so it's just yeah. not alfie's day is this where the cop says don't you know it's obligatory yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh and then we get the uh the announcement like l- these 
loudspeakers on every street corner start broadcasting a message saying stop ordinary activities and prepare for the national BIM hour. So it's like the two minutes hate in 1984, except instead of yelling at Goldstein, everybody has to dance and celebrate the power of BIM. Mm -hmm. So we get a reprise of the, the original BIM song. Hey, 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 BIM's on the way or BIM's the only way. And we get to see firefighters who stop putting out a fire and go <laughs> yep. and dance to it. Mm -hmm. uh, construction workers dancing to it. Surgeons in the middle of a surgery abandon the operation and start dancing. Uh, nuns are dancing. Police are dancing. And leading the whole thing is BB and Dandy and Pandy. It's great. It's it's tremendously silly, but it's wonderful. Yeah, it goes on so, so long, by the way, but the sequence is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a scene somewhere in here where we get to see, like, BB is enjoying her popularity. She's the biggest star in the world. The crowds are shouting her name. And then uh, at one point, Alfie comes to her through the crowd and tries to get her attention. And she sort of tries to call back to him, but the, the BIM entourage keeps them apart. They put her in a car, and then the two uh, orc gentlemen uh, beat Alfie up. Bulldog and fat boy. No, wait, bulldog and fat dog, sorry. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, and then we get another sad song from BB and Alfie called Cry For Me. This is the one that sounds like Sandy from Greece. It starts, mm -hmm. Alfie, <laughs> where are you now? Uh, and uh, th this is not one of the better songs in the movie. It's a standard yeah. basic pining for each other song. Just more evidence that Boogaloo is right and that, that Alfie may have some talent, but it desperately needs to be transformed into something else. Uh, so next song, at his lowest point, Alfie goes to a party uh, at some kind of BIM pad. I don't know if this is Boogaloo's apartment or whatever. Uh, and at this party, Alfie is drugged and taken advantage of by Pandy. And this leads into a song called Coming, where Pandy is <laughs> taking advantage of Alfie while he he's on this like bad trip and he's like seeing hallucinations and uh, bad dreams and all this stuff. And then it just generally turns into a song about the concept of sex. Yeah, it has. It's about as subtle as uh, as Speed was earlier. Yeah. Real dumb lyrics, uh, but but it's kind of catchy, I guess. And it ha I did like the drugged out optical effects and sort of the dark disco stylings of this whole uh, part of the picture. Yeah, like like many of these other dance numbers, it does have some great visuals and uh, and and like weird drug trip effects. Uh, but afterwards, Alfie wakes up on a park bench where here here the movie takes a real turn. Mm -hmm. He's on a park bench and he is greeted by Joss Ackland in a Gandalf beard wearing a robe with a knife on his belt. Yep, yep. Uh, bare chested, bare belly. Uh, yeah. it's a, you know, it's, it's not necessarily what you'd expect. Uh, but, uh, but again, he brings a grandeur. He brings a dignity to any performance. Uh, very much in effect here. Right. So he's like, Alfie, come with me. And he, he leads him through the woods and introduces him to a commune of hippies. Uh, these are hippies who live in a cave under a nearby bridge, and they are not plugged into the BIM. It is specified that they don't watch TV. And this is like, huh, what? There, there can be a society that doesn't watch TV? And some of the, the hippies look at Alfie and they say, peace. And Alfie says, haven't heard that word in a long time. A long time. I love how the old man here introduces the hippies. 
as if this bunch stands in strong opposition to the forces of drugs and sexual liberation and rock music that we've been witnessing thus far that has been established as like the enemy, you know, because these cave dwelling hippies did all of those things. They invented some of those things. But I think they are they are not part of the global technological mass media infrastructure. True, true. And that that seems to be a part of what the evil is in the movie. Mm, that's right. Uh, so meanwhile, we check in with BB and the BIM crowd, uh, and we find out that Pandy is actually quite penitent for how she and the others have manipulated Alfie and BB. She confesses to BB what they did, and then she tells BB to go to Alfie. She says he loves you, and this is this is Pandy's redemption. Uh, we we see how she in turn is abused and mistreated by the BIM world, and uh, she sings a song about her turn of heart called "I Found Me." I'm going to say this is the best of the earnest songs in the movie, but it's hard for any of the earnest songs to compete with the awesome satanic majesty of BIM. Yeah, I would agree on both counts here. Yeah, this this is a decent song, um, but it, it doesn't have a lot of competition uh, against the, the songs Alfie has been uh, whipping out in the rest of the picture. I think I would say the, the song as a composition is in, in nothing special, but Grace Kennedy does much better with, with this song than it actually deserved. Yes. Because she does, she puts a shocking amount of passion into it. We get like the real like close up on the tears and everything. Uh, she, she is selling that moral uh, change of heart. So here we get to the end. BB, she she repents also. She leaves the BIM world and she goes to seek out Alfie. She goes looking around the the bridge, uh, tries to find the cave and runs into Joss Ackland, the hippie leader. And when the hippie leader meets her, he says multiple lines. I don't know if you caught this, Rob, that sound exactly like lines that Alec Guinness says as (laughs) Obi-Wan Kenobi when he's calling out to R2-D2 in in the original Star Wars. Uh I think he literally literally says, well, hello there. Don't be afraid. <laughs> uh, and even kind of sounds like Alec Guinness. So yeah, uh, yeah. that's interesting. But so he leads her down into the hippie cave. He tells her that Alfie is down in the bachelor quarters. One of the things are like there. Ooh, uh, probably, uh, probably smells a bit rough. <laughs> yeah. And they sing a song called Child of Love. That's okay. I um, like it. It's kind of booming wizard folk, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's Okay. Um, and, uh, so here, like some time passes, like BB comes into the world. They take, uh, they take the BIM mark off of her forehead and she seems cleansed of the evil of BIM. And then we cut to like a year in the future where she's been living there in the cave with the hippies, with Alfie. And now Alfie and BB have a child together. And in the grand finale, the Boogaloo leadership comes to mount an assault on the hippie community and to collect BB because they say, you know, we've got, she's got a contract with us. And because of this contract she signed, she owes Boogalo uh, Music $10 million for leaving the business. And also, by the way, all of you hippies are under arrest. But just when things look darkest, uh, we get a literal deus ex machina. So Alfie is um he's he's looking around and Alfie who has a beard now by the way I didn't recognize him at first with the beard uh he says it's going to be all right I know he's going to come BB says who's going to come Alfie says Mr. Tops no idea who's no Mr. Tops I- nobody has mentioned Mr. Tops up until this point again the only 
thing or person that ha- we, we know is coming is BIM. BIM is on the way, right? There was no mention of Mr. Tops. Who, so, yeah, uh, uh, shh, don't ask questions about Mr. Tops. Mr. Tops does appear. He comes down from heaven in a spectral Rolls Royce. He's wearing like a white suit and he uh, he comes out of the car. He leads the hippies away to become spiritual flesh and live in a place behind the sun. Um, <laughs> oh, and also Pandy abandons Bim and she goes along as well. And then uh, we like. Uh, Mr. Tops here, who uh, did we already say he's played by Joss Ackland? This is also Joss Ackland. Uh, Mr. Tops uh, has a little conversation with Mr. Boogalow, like as all of the hippies are departing into the heavens. Yeah. And again, Shabal and Ackland, they, they do manage to make this exchange feel important. Like they're both very talented actors and they, they, they bring a certain um, gravity to the, the conversation that is maybe not completely earned uh, to the point where you know, like they're having the conversation. And, you know, and uh, Mr. Tops is like, well, we're going to I'm going to take them all. We're going to go away. We're going to go to another planet and do something else. Only you're not going to come. We're going to try it without you this time. And and of course, um, Mr. Bugalo is like, you can't have creation without me. You can't have good without evil. And Mr. Top says, let's give it a try. And, uh, and, and, it, and it works. Like, it doesn't come off as a corny line. It, like, fools me into thinking, like, yeah, yeah, let's give it a try. Mr. <laughs> Tops is right. And then he, like, raptures everybody. Yes. One of the most out-of-nowhere endings I can think of in any film I've ever seen. Again, we, we do know it, it was partially a disappointment to discover that there had originally been shot these earlier scenes where Mr. Tops creates the world, so you did know mm-hmm. who this character was before. Uh, I, I prefer not to think about that and to think of the final cut of the movie as the intended version of the story where you have no prior knowledge of Mr. Tops and he just appears. Yeah. Yeah, I think I prefer it that way as well. With uh, all the disco freaks turn, being turned into hippies and the hippies travel to the Grey Havens, <laughs> Earth is left to Boogaloo and his demons. Um, and then the movie ends. I've, you know, I've also seen it pointed out by um, people commenting on the Apple that we don't really have a rousing grand finale musical number which is, is kind of interesting. Like, usually you have something like that. There would be a, a big musical number as all of these characters are raptured away to this new creation. But uh, no, we don't get that. Uh, we, uh, not that I'm missing it, because I'm still just blown away by this divine ending uh, to this picture. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, it, it's, it's weird that our final musical number is, I guess, the, the wizard folk song from earlier, uh, Child of Love. Well, the uh, we get a reprise of the apple that plays over the end over of the credits. credits. Yeah. So, but that's funny because that almost makes it sound like a triumph of evil. Like at the <laughs> end of the story, we just go back to the song about how wonderful the temptation is. Yeah, I mean, Bugalo's going to make a party out of it. He's going to make uh, lemonade out of these lemons. Uh, so you know it's going to be rocking. Uh, it's just going to be the, the attendance is going to be uh, far lower uh, since all the people got raptured away. But he's still got a uh, he's still got bulldog and fat dog there, so we'll get to discover what their talents are. It wouldn't be heaven without them, <laughs> right? Okay, I think that's all I can say about the apple. Uh, I am exhausted, but th- this <laughs> was uh, one of my favorites. We have watched absolutely nuts. Yeah, this movie's a workout. It's uh, uh, I highly recommend it. It's 
it, you know, people talk a lot about, you know, movies that are so bad they're good uh, and about, you know, weird movies. Uh, and, like, this is all of those things. Like, it's rough around the edges. There are things that clearly don't work or didn't work as intended. But then there's so much that does work and succeed and resonates. Like, it has some great songs in it. Um, you know, I think a lot of a lot of its failure comes down to just when it came out. Um, I, I, if this had come out like five years earlier, what would the reception have been like? And if, if nothing else, I, th- I think it's great that it did find its audience over time and it does have this cult status now. Oh, yeah. This is one I, I know I'm going to be coming back to it many, many times. I wonder what things I will notice in the future that I didn't notice this time. It's full. It's, it's, <laughs> you've noticed something different every time you watch it. Uh, all three times I've watched it in the last month, I've, I've noticed something new. All right, we're going to go ahead and close it out here. We'd love to hear from you, though, if you have thoughts on the Apple. We actually already heard from one listener uh, who went to a viewing at the Apple. Uh, so uh, write in if you, too, have a story uh, about seeing the Apple. Uh, also, if you have thoughts on other musicals we should do in the future, I know we've had multiple people suggest uh, 1981 Shock Treatment, the follow-up to um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So, you know, that's that's potentially on the table. But there are other weird musicals. Let us know what you would like to hear us talk about in the future. In the meantime, we'll remind you that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. If you want a complete list of all the movies we've covered over the years, uh, go to letterbox.com. It's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. Uh, we have a profile there. It's Weird House. And you can find a list of all the movies we've covered and sometimes there's a hint ahead uh, at what's coming up next. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.